Are you laughing now? Episode 12 of Embrace the Suck, the only official, licensed, sanctioned, Asian hornet infested podcast of APG, bringing you two cents worth of free perspective on the heavy hitting lifestyle. I'm your host, Bill Hart, coming to you almost live from the United Kingdom, where a handful of Bible scholars are convinced that based on current coronavirus situations that we are currently enduring, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So I guess according to Revelation 6, uh, Revelation being the last book of the Bible, the four horsemen represent war, plague, famine, and death. Not uh, not the front four of the 1920-whatever Notre Dame football team. But uh, now war, plague, famine, and death. And uh, as to whatever proper order those go in, I'm not a Bible scholar, so I couldn't say for sure. But I guess the idea is that it w- they would basically be culling like a quarter of the world's population, which is an interesting proposition because I only recently found out that before 1800, the uh, entire population of the world was less than 1 billion people. So basically from the dawn of time up to the 1800s, it took that long to hit 1 billion. But guess what it is now? Like 7.8, so almost 8 billion people. So if that was the case and you're only going to cull like a quarter, I got to ask, like, is that it? Yeah, right. But uh, also, too, I refuse to be impressed by an apocalypse that allows Jeff Bezos to scoop up an extra $24 million or whatever his uptick has been uh, since this whole sideshow kicked off. I mean, I don't think it's too much to ask that if you're going to sell something as the end of the world, that it would be it, at least be a little impressive. Like, I'd like to see actual horses with actual horsemen, preferably carrying like a scroll or a scale or a fiery sword or some kind of thing. I mean, how impressive would that be? That would be pretty cool, right? I mean, if it's going to happen anyway, at least, you know, I'll get there and get a front row seat for it, right? Pretty cool. You know, until some jerk next to me is like, CGI sucks on this, bro. This is totally B-grade. Well, haters will say it's Photoshopped. But uh, anyway, so quick beard update before we move on. So beard uh, beard reset day for me was uh, like mid-March, and I've been letting it grow back since then. And uh, at present, I think we're at levels of probably around mid-level Greek philosopher. So, you know, if you were cruising a museum and looking at all the busts of famous Greek characters and, you know, you'd say, oh, look at this guy. Yeah, he's, uh, he probably didn't know that much. Look at that beard. Amateur. Anyway, we press on, right? Continue. Topic for this week, though, your place in the circle. Some folks might have not known that... Um, we had a we had a chance to go to the Super Bowl this last time around. So our clients went, so they, they took us with. And uh, we've been involved with the NFL for about five years now. And as far as pro sports goes, we started with baseball. And that was probably back, I want to say like 2011, we got our first gig talking with a, a pro client, so a baseball team. And, um, you know, I didn't know that, you know, besides the guys that you see on TV, you know, you see baseball players on TV, they've got like five leagues underneath that, you know. So there's the guys you see on TV, but most of the people involved with that baseball team will never be the guy on TV. They're like, you know, just some guy. I play a little, you know, low-level ball. I I pay the rent. No big deal. Uh, I mean, when we were there, they paid several million dollars to some kid from Latin America 
And they were straight with us, like, yeah, he he doesn't have the discipline to really go far. But, you know, on the off chance he does, we want to make sure we get dibs. So we kick down the money. But um, that was where we got our start in pro sports. And then we spent some time with hockey, uh, basketball, and then moved into football. And um, we still work with all kinds of other athletics outside of the pro arena. I mean, we're, we work with, I mean, college field hockey, solid people, uh, soccer, competitive sailing, you know, and then, you know, also corporate work. But uh, we've really got a lot of hours in with the NFL over the last five years. So, so last year, one of our clients went to the Super Bowl and uh, they had us along for the ride. So before you say, like, what, what the hell are you doing there? You know, there was a time when I would say the same thing. But what we found out uh, early on was that, I mean, I call it Operation Rabbit's Foot at this point. And what we found out is, like, we get down there and some guys, you know, by now there are guys that have that are like mid-career that we've known them since they were rookies and what the coaches and staff and trainers and them tell us is that man when you guys show up you know you guys are so hard on them early on that every time you guys show up they tighten up a little bit and you know guys finish their meal and chairs are getting pushed in people are sitting up straight in class paying attention like oh okay so you just just kind of a friendly reminder of like hey man keep your act together so they brought us with you know down to miami so it was pretty cool it was a good trip um but we got down to Miami for this thing, and to be part of that whole Super Bowl situation, it was eye-opening to say the least. I mean, for one, obviously, there was a line for everything. Like, anything you want, anything, you're going to stand in a line of some sort. Uh, there's knickknacks, T-shirts, you know, coffee mugs, visors, whatever, around every corner. And anywhere you went, you needed a badge. If you were going to go anywhere, I mean, pretty much every major hotel was occupied by you know, either the teams or the press or family and friends, you had to have a badge. You had to have a specific credential. And I mean, I've been in all manner of, you know, uh, overseas classified three-letter agency facilities. And I think I needed more badges, more badges, just to be in Miami this for this Super Bowl thing than I ever needed overseas to do any kind of classified work. Um but it was interesting, though, because there is actually a company down there that that's all they do is help out, get people where they need to go. So like your family, your friends and people don't know that. Uh, I mean, when you if you're a part of a team that goes to the Super Bowl, people's family and friends come out of the woodwork and they want to go with. So um, there's this company that helps do nothing but that. So you stand in yet another long line. I didn't have to stand in this line. I stood in other lines. Good for good for me. Right. But um, you get up there, you tell them your name, and then they come to you with this big package of, like, here's where you're staying, here's where you get to hang out, here's where you can't hang out, and, and so on. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a big production. Um, but, I mean, they, these, these people, they come out of the woodwork, and there's just no way that it can't have an effect on the team. And that's what was kind of interesting to see. I mean, it's already hard to win a game in the NFL. I mean, these dudes really put in the long hours looking for this flawless execution. And, I mean, regardless of what the guy at the water cooler will tell you about how he'd go 99-0 and 0 if they would just give him his shot, man. Bro, those guys are so stupid. I know what I'm doing. Give me a shot. But I digress. But, yeah, I, like I had no idea that this whole thing kicks off like two weeks before the actual game. So the teams get down there like two weeks ahead to start practicing and getting acclimated and so on. And us, we join them down in Miami about four days before game time. And it really reminded me of being overseas, you know, getting ready to you're in this operational environment. And it's kind of this this environment that's 
feels kind of artificial and stood up and you're just kind of milling around planning and waiting and getting ready to go and get it on. But the day before, uh, so the day before the game, though, we, we got over to the stadium, did a little walk around. All the players got to check it out, look at the locker room. And guys were taking selfies and, you know, just hanging out. And it was kind of cool because there's no press around. There's nobody. It's just dudes being dudes. And when I was a kid, you know, like I was a young kid in the 80s. And, you know, like back in the day when you would watch, you know, like Lyle Alzado or something, you think football player, you think these are like grown men with jobs at a steel factory, you know, in their off time and they grow ridiculous mustaches and these are serious men doing serious stuff. But, you know, now that I'm an old man, we go out here and it's young dudes, man, and it's young dudes at at a in a situation that, that a lot of them probably thought they would never be in and uh, getting an opportunity a lot of them might have thought they would never get and just kind of soak in the moment. And so that was kind of cool. So the next day then we you know, we go and we did the game, did the Super Bowl game. And I, I got to tell you, um, first game I ever saw in person, first NFL game I ever watched in person was from the sidelines. So most people don't know that when I talk to them about the work that I do. But the first time I ever saw a game was from the sidelines. Um, uh, but even that, you know, you can kind of get used to that. And really, when we're there, we're watching the players and the coaches, and I'm just kind of watching how the machine runs. Like, you know, you can stand there and tell guys, hey, man, this is the kind of attitude you need to have when stress gets up. But until you can watch the machine run, you really don't know how guys are reacting and how they're performing. But being on the sideline for the Super Bowl, and that's really something. So, you know, if you get a chance, I do recommend it. But uh, that whole experience kind of drove home the idea that competing at the top level in any arena, uh, it's really not just enough to make, you know, that bare minimum standard. I mean, looking at all the stress that, that was hitting these guys from, you know, even from their own family and their own friends and then being neck deep in this madness for two weeks. I mean, you know, you think of uh, somebody that you know, you know, in the same way they could say like, hey, man, I could probably run that fast or I could lift that big. You know, maybe I could have gone pro. Like, no, man, no, there's there's a whole lot more to it than that to compete at anything at the top level. And in that same way, that stress that that we saw these guys get submitted to, you know, in terms of the fans and the media and the general madness, uh I'm sure every year there are other NFL teams saying, oh, man, if we would have picked up that one game or if that one guy would have not got injured. No, man, because at the end of the day, to compete at that level, there's so much more. Like every level you go up, there's so much more that comes into it. And if you want to own that next level of performance, you're lying to yourself when you throw those skinnier teeth scenarios in there. I mean, you got to own it and own it big. Otherwise, when you get to that top level, you're just like, oh, buddy, I'm not quite ready, and you know it, and it sucks. So this is something that I've been on both ends of, something I know a little bit about, both as a guy saying, oh, if I could have just, oh, you know, and then as the guy really crushing it. Uh, so 2003, I was at SEAL Team 3, and I got picked up for the National Mission Unit. So forgive me if I sound like I'm beating around the bush a little bit here. There are still some parts of Fight Club that you can't talk about. But, you know, so a National Mission Unit, this is – as opposed to other units in the military, let's say uh, if, for instance, you know, hypothetically, there was a presidential finding that some terrorist was hiding somewhere and some president wanted this specific guy to get killed or captured, then a national mission unit would be the unit to prosecute that kind of a mission. So you see what I'm saying? See where I'm going with this? Uh, but you don't get to just jump right into that kind of thing. They've got their own training pipeline at that level, and 
it stings. I do not mind telling you. It's a lot, a lot of training. I did a lot of jumping, a lot of shooting. And uh, while I was there, uh, 2003, after about four months, uh, they called me and they said, yeah, man, we're going to let you go. Uh, you're not making the cut. And at that level, you know, there are no real answers. You don't really get to submit a complaint to HR like, dude, I don't think they gave me a fair shake. They didn't get to know me or whatever. It, you know, there's no real answers. It just is what it is at that level. But the butt hurt does tend to linger a little bit. And honestly, I spent a lot of time turning it over saying, you know, if, oh, if I had only done a little bit more of this, a little less of that, or if I had, you know, if I had done something a little bit different. But then it's, it takes me right back to knowing what I know now about, you know, competing at that high level that the skinny, the skinny your teeth thing. No, man, you're either there or you're not. And if you're looking for skinny your teeth, then it means you're not. But later for me, again, I was working at a national level and this time in a slightly different capacity, but I had a much different experience. And the best way I can describe it is, I don't know if you've ever, you go to the airport and, uh, you know, when you're sitting in the plane and you look out to the other airplanes, you know, down the little airplane parking lot and you see like the little, the little tractor, you know, like the little tugboat that moves the big airplanes around. You know, a lot of things that I had done in life felt like I was in a race with one of those little tractors, you know, like I'm just neck and neck, just barely moving and, you know, just keeping up with other tractors in the tractor race. But when I finally got into this work that I got into in uh, 2006, 2007, I felt like instead of the tractor, I became the airplane and the big engines came on and I was just, and I honestly felt like doing this work, I am better at this than most people will ever be at anything in their entire life. And, you know, it was kind of a, it was kind of a good deal that, you know, if I had made it into, into the, the national mission program that I was working on earlier, it would, it would be a struggle every day of the week. It would be, you know, I can do it. I mean, I was, I was high-speed shooter, man. I was good at it, but it didn't flow as natural as what I ended up doing in the follow-on. And as for why I'm not still doing that kind of work, um, I mean, because having my kids look at me like they don't know me, like if I'm the UPS guy or someone they're supposed to know, you know, because I'm gone all the time, it's not really a good deal. And really, even if I didn't have kids, I mean, if I'm going to hang my neck out, it's not going to be to make the world safe for multinational corporate interests. So, you know, it is what it is. And besides, the way things are going now, I mean, might be operating, you know, on the home turf in short order. Who knows, right? But in the meantime, I like the work I'm doing now. So, you know, I'm good with it. I'm going to press on. You hardly ever get shot doing this job. Uh, so what's the point here? Well, let me lay it out like this. I had a chance to read uh, one of the classics, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a good read, man. It's, it's an older meme, but it checks out. But uh, it's a good read if you get a chance. Uh, and he makes the point uh, in this book that everyone you meet is your superior in some way, which is to say there's something that they're better at than you. There's something they have that you can learn from, something you can take away. So anybody you meet, you shouldn't just discount them you know, because you never know what you can learn from them. And that's that's a good point. But for this situation, I would offer the opposite perspective. And that is to say that you have some area, some field of expertise, which you can be better than anyone you meet. 
So when I say best, you know, if, you, if we say best, that can be a very fluid, very subjective term. But that it's still to say that there's something you have that comes natural, something that other people would watch you do and say, damn, I can't do that. But I think the thing that keeps people from finding out whatever that thing is that they have is this unwillingness to fail at anything. Yeah, like nobody wants to fail. I mean, it's definitely a dirty word. And granted, failing sucks, but really, it more than makes up for it when you step into something, you know, and you expect to fail, but then at, at some point you notice that you just keep going and going and going, and then you're all by yourself, and you're like, hey, man, look at me. I'm doing it. You know, I got something I'm good at. So I guess if there's one message that I would leave you with this week, it would have to be get out there and fail. All right? Get out there and fail. Because if you never go, you'll never know. So that's about all we got time for this week. Uh, if you've got a topic you'd like to hear about or a question you want, you want to ask, you can hit us up at info at apg.team. Or you can check out our website at www.apg.team. See what we have going. And until next time then, as the sun sets slowly in the east, I will leave you with the words of Mark Twain, who says, There are basically two groups of people, those who accomplish things and those who claim to have accomplished things. You can guess which group is more crowded. that you are not.